0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning, you're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go beyond the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Philip C. On today's show, I speak to Lucas Myers. He's a Senior Associate for Southeast Asia at the Wilson Centers Asia Programme, about how a group of armed rebels is putting significant pressure on Myanmar's military junta. Good morning, Lucas. Before we talk about these resistance forces, let's set some context, right? Exactly three years ago, when the military seized power from Aung San Suu Kyi's elected government, can you describe how Myanmar has changed?
1: So really, since the coup, Myanmar has undergone what many you know, within Myanmar are calling this spring revolution. And I think what we've seen is a genuine widespread deep felt uprising against the the military and what's really unique about this moment is that this spans ethnic groups it spans generation this is a very passionate movement that sees the military as taking Myanmar from this path of in growing democratization growing liberalization and yanking it back into the the very dark past and in the, in the people of Myanmar are very upset about this rightfully so And in the three years since, the pro-democracy resistance has steadily gained momentum. And especially in the last few months, uh, really challenged the military on the battlefield, uh, politically and militarily. And the military is really struggling to hold on to power. And I think this is the most at risk the military has has been since Myanmar's independence. This is a serious moment uh, of risk for the military. And I think that the pro-democracy resistance coalition has a real chance here to change Myanmar for the better and overturn this this coup
0: the sense is that this uprising is relatively recent i mean it's been there for a long time but the intensity has you know gone up one notch right in the past couple of months what was the trigger
1: so really what happened in the last few months is, is i would trace it back a bit further in that in by early 2020 2023 we're starting to see the resistance forces gain uh, in capability. So the people's Defense forces are training, they're getting better equipment, they're coordinating much more closely. The ethnic armed organizations are coordinating more closely, especially with the NUG and the main in the coalition uh, from the the pro-democracy movement. These groups are all co- coalescing together. And then the real key trigger that knocked over some of the military junta's uh, dominoes in the last few months was the Operation 1027, named for the date it was launched, October 27th. Now, the Three Brotherhood Alliance, which up until that point had maintained a somewhat arms-length relationship with the resistance movement. And, you know, it was training some of these people's defense forces, but it wasn't directly involved in, in... very much fighting with the junta despite a few skirmishes on 1027 it decided and and launched this uh relatively widespread offensive in northern shan state that then spread throughout rakhine and and uh and you know beyond that uh, northern shan state that offensive Ended up seizing a variety of towns, strategic outposts, and, and important supply routes with the border with China. This very much surprised the junta, took them uh, on the back foot and, dis- and dislodged them in many areas. At the same time, and just following, other resistance groups around the country began launching follow-on offensives and strikes all over the place. From, like I said, Rakhine to Karen State, Karenni State, into Sagaing. Chin state and in the military really was not able to respond it's been suffering attrition over the last three years it lacks the strategic reserve uh, it's demoralized mm. um, and essentially it's it's a counter-offensive capability has been very much weakened and, and now it's on the back foot and it's lost around 40 towns it's much of it uh, many you know, outlying outposts have been abandoned or taken by the resistance forces, and, and it really has no military reserves that it can use to really retake the bulk of this territory yeah. it's lost.
0: And just reflecting on the momentum made by by this very loose coalition, it is a case where the UNTA really has no energy, no firepower to fight back, right, because they're so depleted in terms of resources. It's just this... Momentum that we're seeing that the opposition is charging forward.
1: I think so. Now, of course, there's always a risk for the resistance forces to overextend themselves. Right. I mean, it's not been a complete success in every part of the country since the October 27th, you know, offensive began. You know, for instance, Loika and Kareni state has, you know, not been taken completely by the resistance. They've been slowed down, and the junta really dug in. To to hold that town, uh, the state capital. But I think overall, the junta is incredibly demoralized. We've seen a variety of desertions. Entire battalions at times have surrendered to resistance forces. That's a big deal uh, for the Myanmar military. Additionally, they're increasingly losing aircraft, mostly helicopters. And that's a big sign of, I think, desperation and, and exhaustion. They're probably running low on spare parts. They're relying on their air force to counterattack and and punish resistance forces and civilians. But they can't keep up this tempo. The military is is likely running quite thin on manpower compared to where it was uh, before the coup. Do they need China to help arm them? Yes, uh, China plays a complex role in Myanmar and what's described as a sort of dual approach in Myanmar, where it maintains ties with a variety of actors, including ethnic armed organizations along the border, mm. you know, like the Wa and the Three Brotherhood Alliance. Uh, but for the junta specifically, China is a key backer. And and the main backer, you know, Russia has provided arms. It's provided fighter jets to the junta, but the main, their main foreign supporter remains China, and and specifically what China provides for the military junta is you know economic engagement, belt and road investments, uh, and in military equipment, and a lot of spare parts, you know, aircraft, those kinds of things.
0: How united is this resistance force? These sound like a patchwork of very different groups with perhaps very different motivations
1: and that's correct and that i think that is the number one challenge facing the resistance coalition is how to keep it together and importantly how to forge a political framework to replace the the old uh, 2008 constitution and replace uh you know the the old way of doing things that's the main challenge facing the pro-democracy forces in the last few weeks we've seen the national unity government which is you know consists of out primarily ousted parliamentarians from the overthrown government of Aung San Suu Kyi and you know a variety of civil society uh, activists and and pro democracy groups they in in coalition with the chin uh, the K- the Karen National Union and and the Karenni announced a sort of fra- a pathway forward you know, in some of their six objectives for how they want to handle this uh transition by taking power back from the military and then how to move forward. The challenge here is some of the key resistance actors were not part of this signed statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of the speculation on why that might be is some of the groups like the Iraqi army are wary of this idea of a federal system that the NUG has put forward. They're looking more for a a very loose, you know, confederation with with a high level of autonomy, right? And so there is some debate within the the coalition about what this post war, uh, you know, constitution country would look like. I think you know the unity question is is often raised, yep. but I think what's important to remember is this is the most united we've seen. The anti-military forces ever be in in Myanmar's history. We are looking at a growing cooperation and coordination, especially on the military side. And so the way I would frame it is, of course, there are deep divides. The the distrust of the Bamar-dominated central government runs deep among many of these ethnic armed organizations and and activist groups and civil society actors. And there's a lot of frustration with the NUG. That's, That's quite you know a prominent narrative however at the end of the day the unity is you know on the military battlefield being forged and that political cooperation i think can come out of that military cooperation and especially because i think the main objective here is the military is the, is the problem and i think the resistance coalition is very firmly united on this mm-hmm. idea that the military needs to go and i think the other point i would like to make on that is that the military is the source of this distrust and disunity in in Myanmar's political environment uh the military has historically played a divide and conquer strategy against the ethnic armed groups it's you know adopted a very Bamar ultranationalist Buddhist sort of mentality and it's played on that in in Myanmar and and so I would really ascribe the blame of you know to the military and so this takes a long time to build that unity and, and trust again But I think the resistance coalition has made a lot of progress.
0: We're heading into some messages and when we come back, we continue our discussion with Lucas Myers from the Wilson Center on the three-year anniversary of the military coup in Myanmar. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Today on the show, Lucas Myers, Senior Associate for Southeast Asia at the Wilson Center's Asia Program on the resistance forces battling Myanmar's military junta. You know, Lucas, the question here is really whether Aung San Suu Kyi is a unifying figure. She's currently in house arrest, but do you see a pathway that all these forces can coalesce
1: and unite under her? So I think that that's a real challenge and a real question, right? So she is obviously in house arrest. The military has shown really no signs of of letting up on that. I think that, you know, the military has zero intention of releasing Aung San Suu Kyi, but You know, she's very beloved by many in Myanmar still, and especially many in the resistance movement. However, there's a lot of distrust, especially among the ethnic armed organizations that are are crucial for this, this resistance movement. Without the EAOs, The NUG could not uh, defeat the military on its own. The AOTs are crucial and they're crucial for building a truly, you know, federal, inclusive Myanmar, right? And there is a lot of distrust there. Mm -hmm. The National League for Democracy um, made a lot of promises when it was in power and it didn't follow through on many of those. It, you know, it ended up betraying a lot of those promises towards, about federalism especially, and that, you know, it lost a lot of goodwill among certain activists as and civil society groups, as well as the ethnic armed organizations. And so I think that element is, is a key, key question, is how the post-war situation looks vis-a-vis that former government. You know, you've heard many people say that the government that was overthrown was a government elected under this 2008 constitution that the resistance is saying we need to get rid of right And so that that would make it we need to you know throw out that government too and, and start fresh mm-hmm. and have new elections and new uh, a new constitution completely and and so you hear that a lot. As well,
0: yeah. But I wonder what how her condition is. I mean, she's been in house arrest recently. uh Her son received the first letter from her since the coup. Uh,
1: what's what's the condition like? So obviously, it's hard to tell because the junta is not, you know, very forthcoming about this kind of information, right? But from what I've seen, it looks like it's not great. I mean, obviously, the junta is not known for its humanitarian tendencies. It's very much a harsh actor here, and I doubt that, uh, you know. I doubt this is a comfortable. This is not a good experience. This is not likely a very comfortable house arrest, and thus I, I fear that that her condition is probably not great. From what I've seen, it sounds like it's not. Her health is is suffering.
0: I think most seriously though is the condition of you know the local Burmese population. I I wonder how they are coping following the coup. Is is the economic situation harsh or? Are they just all not really affected by it and like things are just moving along swimmingly? And that this is just really more a political, military action that's isolated in nature.
1: Actually, so. You know, the economy has been devastated. It's essentially undone years of GDP growth. I mean, it's been wiped essentially off the economic front. Obviously, international investment has largely dried up. Inflation has gone out of control. I mean, there's a variety of serious economic challenges. And especially uh, on the humanitarian side and conflict-afflicted areas, there are internally displaced persons, refugee crisis, Uh, People having food insecurity. I mean, there's a huge uh, genuine humanitarian crisis in Myanmar. Uh, people are suffering. It's really, uh, it's worsening now, especially that fighting has increased in intensity in the last few months. It's gotten much worse, especially along the border regions. And so this is a serious problem. And the international community needs to do a lot more to ensure that humanitarian aid is, is provided to Myanmar. I mean, this is a really pressing concern.
0: But to be honest, the international community is distracted with a lot of other bigger challenges, right? They are ignoring Myanmar.
1: No, and this is a problem. Yes. Uh, the international community has unfortunately really left Myanmar on its own. The people of Myanmar have been asking for support internationally, uh, but it's not been forthcoming. And this is, this is, I think, one of the main frustrations you hear from Burmese people is that they'll say, you know, why not us? Why, why are we not getting any money? You know, on often uh, a phrase you hear sometimes is, you know, with 1% of the aid given to Ukraine, we could defeat the military. Uh, You hear this a lot. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this and none of them good. I mean, largely it's realpolitik, you know, countries like China, a lot of Myanmar's Myanmar's other neighbors uh, have been very unwilling to uh, back the pro-democracy resistance, if anything, uh, obviously China, but India, Thailand, they've been very much engaged with the military. And, what that leads to is that for instance, when humanitarian aid is provided, sometimes it is or a lot of times it's given through the military and that prevents it from being given to people who really need it. Right. And additionally, I think there's just a lack of attention on Myanmar. I think many in the international community are focused on other conflicts like Ukraine, Gaza, and, and Myanmar often gets ignored. And, and that's a real tragedy and it, it needs to be altered. And I think in this, in this case, what Needs to happen at least from an American perspective is I think Washington in particular needs to pay a lot more attention to this issue. Um, in D.C., there tends to be uh, you know Southeast Asia tends to be less of a priority, and that to me as a Southeast Asia focused analyst doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but especially in Myanmar it desperately needs more attention in, in D.C.
0: Why? Why do you think D.C. needs to pay attention more to Myanmar?
1: So I would say that there's a few reasons. Uh, I think one, the U.S. has made promises to the pro-democracy movement. We've promised this, we passed in US Congress a bill called the Burma Act that essentially promises to support groups like the National Unity Government and the EAOs and the People's Defense Forces as they oppose the military. It's promised a variety of humanitarian aid, funding, support, you know, non-lethal equipment, you know, a variety of things. We've promised essentially since the coup that that our goal is to restore Myanmar to the path of democracy, yet implementation of this law has been very slow. There's a lot of frustration in Myanmar about this, mm-hmm. that it's not really been as forthcoming. I think what the problem is, is from the way I see it, Washington is facing a variety of international challenges and it's Myanmar has been a lower priority than many. And I think if the U.S. is serious about um, democracy it's if it's serious about the pivot towards this indo-pacific towards asia then it really does need to get serious and actually you know follow through on these promises
0: but sadly, you know, Myanmar's own neighbors are not taking this seriously, right? Even though the conflict is right at the border, there are issues of migration of people, refugees all across the border, even its own neighbors don't take it seriously.
1: Now, I would say the reason for that is, is very different. So for Myanmar's direct neighbors, it's, it's a very cold, calculated, you know, realpolitik, you know, hard power sort of approach, right? They're looking at this completely devoid of the, you know, concerns about democracy. If anything, they're actually quite concerned about that. I think in the case of, you know, China and Thailand, they don't trust the democracy movement at all. They don't think that it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of distrust there. And especially in China, there's a fear that the national unity government is is too pro-Western. I mean, that's a fear that Beijing has, right? In India, it's, these calculations of why they're very much distrusting of the democracy movement is fears about instability. This, this, you know, perennial concern that you know Myanmar is going to fall apart. Now, I think that that's a very overstated concern. But Myanmar's neighboring governments are very much engaging in the junta out of their own sort of calculations of, of of their own interests. Now, I would say that I think that's a very that's a miscalculation on their part. I think the pro-democracy resistance has done very well and demonstrated this growing unity. It's demonstrated that the military is is the problem. And and obviously I think the military can't really be trusted here, but unfortunately. Myanmar's neighbors uh, don't see it that way.
0: Interesting that you say that its neighbors have really made a very clear strategic intent in terms of where they position themselves. And if you juxtapose that with what's happening with ASEAN with their five-point peace process plan, that's a different reason why that's not effective, right? They actually are trying to do something, but they're just incompetent in pulling through and influencing the junta, right?
1: I think the challenge with the five-point consensus is enforceability. So in the beginning when this was agreed to, the junta said, yeah, okay, right, here, this five-point consensus. And then they just walked away and then did nothing to implement it on their end because they weren't serious. They were doing it to buy time. The junta just wanted to buy time to crush the resistance militarily. Now, to their surprise, the, the resistance actually is you know, essentially gaining momentum against them. Yeah. and And so the junta is now panicking right they sent a non-political representative to the to asean for the first time mm. last month that's because they are reeling they're feeling pressure now the problem with the 5 point consensus is also sort of similar to other issues within asean is that it's obviously a very diverse group of countries with very different interests, very different government types. Um, and the consensus principle and the non-interference principle, you know, in the charter, essentially lock down controversial issues like Myanmar, because while Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, and the Philippines may be quite supportive of democracy in Myanmar, Thailand is not, right? In in. Within that, there's no agreement then. Even if one country is disagrees, then the consensus isn't there and you can't move forward. And then the non-interference aspect is that there's a real lo- reluctance within ASEAN to, say, apply economic punishment on the junta or, say, impose other sort of political sanctions even, right? And and so that kind of, those two elements uh, really limit the enforceability of, of the five-point consensus. It's very much something that the junta has to, you know, the, the junta has no pressure to abide by it, right? I
0: guess the billion-dollar question is if I was to have another conversation with you next year, are we going to still be talking about the junta or will there be a new government? Will the five-point consensus be implemented in some form
1: Oh, that's a that's a dangerous predictions are a dangerous thing. Right. Um, in my view, it's Myanmar's situation is very fluid and it's impossible to predict with any real certainty. Um, many people at the beginning of, of 2021 thought that the junta would consolidate control quickly. Uh, but That obviously hasn't happened. The resistance is is gaining momentum. As we've discussed. So I think looking forward, I would say that the timeline for a potential, you know, resistance victory is is shortened. I think that we're looking at a much more uh, quicker timeline for a military defeat. However, I think that we also shouldn't downplay the very long uh, distance that they still have to go. The military has not decided to give up. The military is still dedicated to fighting tooth and nail uh, to hold on to power. And I've seen no signs of them willing to enter negotiations or, or, you know, abide by the five-point consensus, really, right? And so I would say that in a year's time, more off, more likely than not, will still they'll still be significant fighting. The military will still likely try to hold on. Now, of course, there are rumors and discussions about dissatisfaction within the military about Menonkhlang in his rule. You know, there's a lot of reported you know maneuvering behind the scenes. You know, could he be ousted and replaced? Possibly. I mean, that's that's been a rumor. Uh, however, I don't see a successor of his as likely to change course. I think that by and large the military is very dedicated to its you know zero negotiations approach and I think the resistance um, doesn't would not trust anyone really in the military and and they've made their position very clear that the military has to agree to be put under civilian control and back away from politics completely um so at this point I don't see any prospect for a negotiation and I see instead the likelihood being the military has to be defeated on the battlefield and that's going to take a long time potentially. That was Lucas Myers from the
0: Wilson Center. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.